Hey everyone, it's Abadesi, your host of Product Hunt Radio, where I'm joined by the founders, investors, and makers that are shaping the future of tech. This season, each episode is framed as a how-to. I ask industry experts to reflect on their unique experiences so that we can leverage their actionable advice. In this episode, I speak to Yasmin Abdel-Majid about how to pivot your tech career. She's a former mechanical engineer who spent her early career on oil and gas rigs around Australia before turning her talents to writing, broadcasting, and award-winning social advocacy. Her TED Talk, What Does My Headscarf Mean to You?, has been viewed over 2 million times. This interview is packed with valuable reflections on switching career paths more than once, so be sure to take note. Enjoy. Yasmin, thank you so much for being on Product Hunt Radio today. You know I'm one of your biggest fans, obviously. Follow you on social media. You are someone I rely on to surface current affairs, things that I wouldn't necessarily like know about that are happening around the world, like political issues and stories. Um, and that's why I love following you. But I also love that you are always really honest in how you share your views as a Sudanese woman, as a Muslim woman, as a writer, broadcaster, as an engineer, recovering engineer. You are like the definition of multi-hyphen. Um, so I just thought it might be quite fun to start out by asking, you know, when people ask you, yes, what do you do? What do you say? It's always an existential crisis, like every single time. They're like, so what do you do? And I off, almost always, I say to them, look, I'm uncertain. Uh, and then they laugh. And then I'm like, no, 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 seriously, I'm uncertain. Um, but I think I think all the kind of things you described there are things that I do at various times. So I probably, my primary kind of like byline at the moment is that I'm a writer. And that kind of applies in lots of different forms. So I write uh, sort of articles and social commentary and things in, in newspapers and online, as well as books, which is quite cool. I also write scripts for television. Um, and so I guess like the less professional version of that is a storyteller. But, you know, when if you if you say to someone you're a storyteller, they often, especially if it's sort of like a, a, a corporate slash any other context apart from my family, they're like, mm, great, how do you pay your bills? And I'm like, never, that's... that's I pay my bills. I also do a bit of broadcasting, so mostly kind of like current affairs, politics type things. But as you also mentioned, I'm an engineer or a recovering engineer. Um, so I actually, I studied mechanical engineering at university. I had always wanted to work in motorsport. So that was, that was the dream, you know, I when and it's a funny story. When I was 13, my little brother, we used to have this tradition where we would go to the um, the video store. And my dad worked overseas, so it was just me and my little brother and my mum. So we'd all go to the video store and like hire, literally at the time, still a VCR. A, v- a VHS tape, I think that's what they called it. Yeah, um, a VHS tape. Wow. Retro. Um, <laughs> so retro. And we would sit down and watch a film every Friday night as a family. Uh, and my brother picked up this film called Catch That Kid. And it's kind of like the Italian job for high school kids. You know, three kids rob a bank and they escape on go-karts. Um, I think they were needed money because, you know, they wanted to pay for hospital bills, which is actually probably a social commentary on, like, the healthcare system in America. But, you know, I didn't pick that up at the time. But I remember watching this watching this kid, like, drive really fast with a whole bunch of money. And I was like, that is what I want to do with my life yes I want to drive really really fast and I was like mom 
I'm going to become a Formula One driver. And she's like, mm-hmm. Wow. Go wash the dishes. Yeah, so that that's kind of how the dream started. But it kind of, for some reason, I was bitten by the bug. And so I started, like, researching about cars and being super obsessed with cars. And it turns out to be a Formula One driver, you have to be very rich, very skinny, and very short. And I was neither, the, I was none of those. So what I could do was I could design the cars instead. Um, so I went to the university, studied mechanical engineering, ran the university's race race team. Oh, wow. So wait, where are we now? Where in the we world are, are you? Oh, oh, yes. Sorry. I should also I should back up a little bit. I was born <laughs> in Sudan and I, I moved, my family moved to Australia when I was a year and a half. Oh. Uh, so this was in Brisbane, Australia. Got it. Uh, Brisbane, Brisbane is a place where we were the second Sudanese family and the, the next Sudanese family didn't come till 10 years after we moved. So that gives you the context for like how like white it was. Um, and and I was like a, a nerdy little Muslim girl. I decided to wear the headscarf at the age of 10. Uh, because I thought I was a big girl, but it was also awkwardly a couple of months after 9-11. So everyone was like, why are you, you know, why are you making such a political statement? And I was like, I'm 10. I don't know what a political statement is. Um, Like help a sister out. Uh, So that was kind of the context in which I was growing up. I was sort of always, yeah, the, the odd one out, but also didn't quite have the language yet to talk about what it meant to be the odd one out beyond the kind of very migrant story, work really hard and everything will be fine. Um, so that was kind of the ethic that I that I took throughout life. So fast forward, get to university, study mechanical engineering at the University of Queensland, run the race car team, design the chassis, it's all going great. And then I, I like hustle hard. I literally like email this guy every month for like nine months because I want to get a work experience job in the motorsport industry in the UK. And here in, like, begins my first visa drama, one of the many in my life. So I save up all this money. I come to the UK. I secure this sick work experience job. And I still remember it was like the best first half day of my life. I walked past two McLaren F1s on my way to the office. Everyone has an English accent. You know, it's great. They're going to give me this great project. And then I get a call uh, about lunchtime from the admin lady. And she's like, hey, do you have your work visa? And I'm like 19 years old and I've never like really had anything to do with visas. I was like, my what? She was like, your work visa. I'm like, no, no, no you guys were supposed to sort everything out. She's like, darling, we don't sort that out. So they kick me off the premises. They escort me off the premises. No. Without a visa, which like makes total sense. But as a 19 year old, I was like, what is happening? My My life is collapsing around me. Yeah. And so I then just have to like, essentially to get a visa, I would have had to fly back to Australia, which is like oh my gosh. half thousand yeah, dollars at the time. I was like, I'm a student. I don't have that kind of money. Um, and so I just like wallowed about for a bit and watched EastEnders and cried. Um, <laughs> then I just started cold emailing people in the motorsport industry. And I'm like, hey, I'm in the UK. I'm Australian. I would really love to work in Formula One. Can we, can I meet you? And then I just start like catching a train and meeting all these like heads of different motorsport teams. And eventually I get offered a position in this really exclusive motorsport masters in the UK. Wow. Cool. Right. So it's, it's sweet. And I'm like, amazing costs 50,000 pounds a year. Whoa. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to need to go back home and somehow save money in order to pay for this. And so I get a job in oil and gas. And that's kind of how my my engineering career starts. Wow. <laughs> I was like, we're going to get big money and have an adventure. <laughs> this is insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 
the amount of hustle you had as a teenager. I mean, when I was 19 years old, we talk about having an existential crisis now. I was having an existential crisis at 19. I was like, I'm studying economics. I have no idea what I want to do with my life. Is economist even a job you can have now? And meanwhile, you're over there, like in another country, like meeting with the, all the experts of the industry, like, yo, what's up? My name's Yasmin. Let me, let me work for you. This is incredible. Out of, out of curiosity, as you, as you aspired to your F1 ambition, was that something that everyone around you was supportive of? Like when you were doing your mechanical engineering course, you know, we're hearing all these stats right now, like there aren't enough women in STEM, there aren't enough young women studying math, studying engineering, studying software engineering. Did you find that to be the case while you were studying and were you supported? So when I did engineering, when in mechanical engineering, there were seven girls and 300 guys. So like those numbers like have, they've been, they've kind of fluctuated from between 15 to 20% over the last, you know, few decades. So it's not like this is a new thing. I think even when I was um, in engineering, there was a big kind of like, yeah, we want women in STEM. And it used to really rile the guys that I went to uni with and they'd be like, oh, you only got this job because you have boobs or whatever. And I'd be like, rah, I'm literally like one of the smartest people in this grade. That's why I got this job. But like that, that rhetoric has kind of been around for a long time. I think though, like the way that people like generally you you did have the individuals that were super supportive and so you'd have like one or two professors or so on that were like really had your back by and large people saw women engineers as a bit of a novelty even my even my like uh tech teacher at school who had like really supported me when I was telling him about what I wanted to do he was like oh well you know the thing is that if you're a female engineer I know that I'm going to train you but you're going to take time off for when you have a kid so I might as well just train a guy so like, and this was wow. like, yeah, really supportive of me and like had actually encouraged me to go into this field. But there was this really, there's this really quite strong, all these biases about what it means to be a woman in STEM. And, and so like, even though there's this kind of like broad rhetoric about, yes, we need more women in STEM. Yes, we need more female engineers. People aren't actually really engaging with what that really means. They don't actually with oh that means we have to have a different engineering culture because the current engineering culture isn't one that's you know super inclusive or one that encourages women to be their fullest selves and sounds almost hostile to be honest if you're being accused of like not having the same commitment as your male peers yeah and I think but but it took me a long time to unlearn all of those stories right like I, you know, I did mostly engineering type subjects when I was at school. I did, I then did mechanical engineering was super male dominated. Then I went into like motorsport and the drilling industry. So throughout, I was surrounded by a very strong kind of culture, which said women were just less valuable. And so you internalize that and you think the way for you to be valuable is to be as close to a man as possible and to really minimize your, your like womanhood. So I, for a long time was also like, yeah, women probably aren't really good engineers. I'm just the exception because you do internalize those messages. And like a lot of my female colleagues would be like, yeah, we never want, like lots of people wouldn't join necessarily join women in engineering societies or they wouldn't want to be involved in anything to do with quotas because you also have to understand that you're com- you are fighting constantly for credibility and legitimacy and anything that could chip like anything that could fracture that slightly or make you or make the others around you feel like you're not on quote unquote their side will 
hurt your ability to kind of move forward. And so it's this really awkward thing where there's this, a really strong culture and system set up that makes it hardest for individual females or individual women or people from different genders to make their way through the industry without having a broader understanding of, of how systems and structures work. And that's not what we learn. We don't learn about systems and structures and inequality and discrimination. And so you're left figuring things out on your own. Yeah. Um, I think you make some really good points there about, in many ways, sometimes I think we forget as individuals that we participate in the system that we don't like sometimes, right? And and that's exactly what you mean. If we If we grow up hearing narratives, if we are constantly exposed to narratives, which aren't necessarily true, like women aren't as committed to men as they're in the career world because they're going to go off and start families, for example, for example, as if to assume that women will always be more committed than men to starting families, as an example. If we keep telling that story and then we keep hearing that story, we might we might even begin to believe that story, even when I myself as a woman am as motivated, if not more motivated than my husband, for example, uh, in my career. So I think that's really interesting. One thing I wanted to ask, you talked about traveling to the UK from Australia at the age of 19, ready to start a proper internship in the world of F1, um, walking past all these McLaren cars, having the best day of your life and basically being boosted out because you didn't have a work visa. Where did you then find the resilience to think, well, I'm here now, I'm going to literally start cold calling all of these industry experts like, where did that come from? And then like, how did you actually do that? Because like I said, I mean, I certainly wasn't that resourceful at that age. Yeah, I think it's funny, because at the time, it felt like the most natural thing to do. But looking back, yeah, looking back, it is like, oh, wow, where did you get that shit spot? I I think so to give a bit more context, um, when I was 16, I started a youth organization called Youth Without Borders. Um, And so the mission of this organization was to get was to collaborate with other organizations and to empower young people to create positive change in their communities, right? And so we did all sorts of really random projects from setting up mobile libraries in Indonesia, getting nine different organizations together to do that, to like setting up an engineering camp for young kids who didn't usually go to university. So I had already... Yeah, and thank you. And I had already, which meant that I had already had some understanding of like how to self-start and how to kind of make something out of nothing because I'd been doing that for a few years. But also I think there was literally no other option for me. And and for someone like me growing up in Brisbane, nobody was ever knocking on, on me and my family's doors to like join a club or join a council or get involved or anything like that. If we wanted to see anything happen, we had to make it happen ourselves. And so that was just kind of how I grew up was that if you wanted to make, and my parents were really supportive of this kind of philosophy was if, you know, if you wanted to make it happen, then go ahead and make it happen. And Nobody in my family believed that I would make it into F1. Nobody in my degree believed that I would make it into F1. And so I think it was also a case of if if I want to make it into F1, I have to make it happen myself. Like there's nobody here that's going to show me the way and show me the ropes. And I didn't know anyone who had made it into the industry. And so it was literally like even this is like super cheeky, but the way that I had gotten that internship to begin with was I had heard that there was an engineer from the UK visiting the university. And so I like hung around in the main engineering office in the university until I saw him like walk through. And then I like, I was like, Hey, um, I'm really interested in working in F1. Like, can I have a chat to you? And he's like, Oh no, I'm really busy. And then I saw he was wearing like a rotary badge. And I was like, Oh, are you in rotary? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, Oh, cool. Like, 
um, I know some folks from the Rotary Club down the road, like I can introduce you. And it was like, oh, amazing. Here's my card. I would love to meet with the Rotary people next time I'm in town. That's how I got the guy's email. Like literally, I just, I, I like, I papped him essentially. But it was because like, I, I think it has always been part of my DNA to try to make something out of nothing. And I think that rather than, you know, and, and if I think back to that time, when I sort of got kicked out, it was quite funny too, because I was, um, I had an uncle who was living in the UK. So I like sulked back to his house and he, he had also been a mechanical engineer. He was like, you're never going to make it an F1. I was like, uncle, that's so mean. He was like, yeah, I just don't think you will. And then, and so I did, I just like sulked around the house for a few days. And then I thought, well, I'm here for the next five weeks anyway. I might as well just try right? What's the worst that can happen? And, you know, it, it literally only one of the tens of people that I emailed replied. But then from that one, I was able to like, kind of find other way, like essentially use that contact and open doors to other folks. It was a lot of like trial and error, but it was also a lot of that like basic hustle of like following people up and calling them and literally turning up to their office, even if it's a 15 minute meeting that they're going to give you. <laughs> one of the guys literally said to me, he was like, I was like, why did you take this meeting? Because he like he ran a company called Triple Eight, which is a big racing company. And he was like, I was just really curious about this 19-year-old girl who rocked up from Brisbane, Australia, who emailed me. I just wanted to know what you were like. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Do you know what's so incredible about that? I just think it's so from doing all these interviews for Product on Radio and just meeting so many incredible, accomplished people, I realized there's almost like two categories of folks ones who hear no and believe it and ones who hear no you can't do that and go I am going to prove you wrong (laughs) and you are definitely in that second category of people so coming back to the story you um have this opportunity to do an incredible master's degree but it's very expensive (laughs) so you go okay I need to leverage my skills and maximize my earnings and that leads you to the oil industry (laughs) talk me through this yeah 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 so the other thing so the other little like piece of the puzzle is that what when I found out that I it cost this much I applied for a scholarship and didn't get it so I was like okay I'm not like that didn't work for me where else can I go and at this point I had missed the sort of graduate applications for all of the the engineering jobs so all my friends were in jobs and I was like flailing about and like bear in mind I was like valedictorian and first class honors so it was a bit odd for me to be like flailing around and I was like okay what am I supposed to do in this situation and again it was a little bit of hustle so I had throughout my university I had met somebody who'd worked for an oil company and it was one of those like mock interview situations and he had sort of said look if you ever need a job when you graduate, let me know. So 18 months later, I email him and I was like, hey, are you, is, is Schlumberger still hiring? And I didn't hear from him. And so again, I, I re- like I sent a couple of emails and then it turns out that he had like left the job or whatever, but somebody had kind of picked those emails up. And literally part of the only reason this guy remembered me was because I had pronounced the company name right. Wow. Everyone else had like butchered the name um, and I had like gotten the name right. Yeah. And so, so he was like, yeah, look, come in. I, I went in for a chat. I walked out with a job and, I, and then I started working as what they call a MW, uh, 
MWD, a measurement while drilling specialist. So I wasn't even a real engineer. I was literally at the bottom rung of the ladder oil rig where I was looking after a set of tools and I would and I started out on land rigs and so I would go around lots of different rigs and I was also on call which meant that I would get a a call at like nine o'clock in the morning and they'd be they'd say like get on the plane by one and I'd be on a rig for like between a week to three weeks I didn't know and so for the first two years of my like post-grad life I like I lived by the beck and call of of uh and then quite interesting after a year I had saved enough money to go to this master's in motorsport but something something didn't quite feel right and this is sort of one of the first of many pivots I sort of started looking at what it would mean to be an engineer in Formula One and in my mind I was going to be like by the race track talking to the you know driver doing the strategy in the action yeah 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 yeah. I love that action that was not going to be my job if I was to take the job that the jobs that were out there, I would like live in the Midlands and, you know, go to an office every day. And yeah, that was fine, but it wasn't what I wanted. And I was like, well, okay, what happens when you get to the thing that you want? You've got an acceptance into this incredible master's. You've got like access to this incredible opportunity. I got, I got offered work experience with Mercedes F1. Oh, wow. It was all lined up. And I was like, okay, I've reached the thing that I want to reach, but is it actually what I want to do anymore? And that was a really difficult thing to think about, right? Because I'd spent literally years, everything pointed towards this mission, Um, gotten there and realized it maybe wasn't exactly what it was all cracked up to be or what I'd necessarily imagined it was going to be. And so I thought, I'm actually having quite a lot of fun here on the rigs. I'm just going to stick it out for another year. And then I started to kind of shift my focus and be like, okay, if it isn't Formula One that I'm dreaming of, I still do really love engineering. Maybe I can have some sort of future in the energy field. And so I started, that was, yeah, that was what I started kind of like um, focusing on. And so I spent a couple of years at Schlumberger and then I took a job at Shell as a drilling engineer. And I'll tell you a really funny side note. So I had applied um, for a Rhodes scholarship around the same time because I wanted to do something in the sort of like, I was like, if I'm going to be in the energy field, I might as well, you know, see if I can do a degree in like economics or something along those lines. I I was shortlisted for the scholarship. And then in the interview, they asked me, oh, what is your like hope and dream? You know, what, what what's the thing that you, why do you really want to do this? And I was like, well, I, you know, I'd like to be a world leader in this in the world in the space of energy I'd like to be a world leader in the industry of energy you know I'm working in energy I think you know it's not always going to be oil and gas I think there's a real future here you know in renewables if I'm somebody with you know a background in oil and gas that can pivot to the renewable space you know I really think I have a future here so I didn't get the I didn't get the scholarship but when I called them for feedback I got interesting feedback and the guy said to me he was like you know what we just thought that you were a little too ambitious wow for the Rhodes scholarship come on scholarship he was like yeah when you said he was like literally when you said that you wanted to be a world player a global player in in the energy industry we thought that was a little bit too ambitious I mean this is like a scholarship that how many presidents and prime ministers have done I'm thinking like Bill Clinton's one of the most notable ones but like seriously that's weird well, it's not when you start to understand that 
you've got a very white state, a state that's very conservative. But what was really interesting about that was at the time I thought, oh, okay, maybe I am too ambitious. But actually looking back, it was such a classic case of how when people saw me, a hijabi black Muslim woman, they didn't see global leader in energy. They thought they saw someone who was too big for their boots. Um, and, and that then became a theme throughout kind of my working life. That's incredible. The fact that you are going for a world-renowned scholarship, the opportunity to be funded to study and like further your career and someone tells you you're too ambitious, that, that to me is just really the most obvious form of discrimination. It's crazy. If you're working on a startup or even just thinking about it, check out the new audio course, Launch a Startup, only on Knowable. You'll hear founders like Reddit's Alexis Ohanian and Everlane's Michael Praisman, plus a whole team of business experts teach lessons on business planning, product development, fundraising, and everything else you need to know to get your startup going. The best part? You'll get $1,000 in AWS credits just for enrolling. Pretty sweet deal. Start listening today on the Knowable app or at knowable.fyi. That's knowable.fyi. Product Hunt Radio listeners get 20% off with the code LAUNCH at checkout. The question for any business owner out there is, are you confident that you've got the right numbers at your fingertips? Serious entrepreneurs and finance teams run on NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system. NetSuite offers a full picture of all your finances, all in one place, in real time, right from your phone or your desktop. No more guessing, no more worry that what you don't know could kill your company. That's why NetSuite customers grow three times faster than the S&P 500, and you can too. Schedule your free demo right now and receive their free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com slash product hunt. Set up your free demo and get your free guide today at netsuite.com slash product hunt. That's netsuite.com slash product hunt. Rewinding a bit to when you finally decided you're going to stay in the oil industry, you know, go into Shell and your interest was sparked in staying in energy. Because you loved F1 for so long and dreamed of being an engineer uh, in motorsports for so long, did any part of you feel sad to let that go? Or were you at this stage of self-awareness where you're like, what I thought it would be is not that and I'm actually fine with it? Because I feel like there are times where pivoting careers can actually feel like a part of you is dying, not to be so dramatic, but, you know, I've even experienced this myself where I kind of got to the end of my three years studying economics at LSE thinking, I don't even want to use this. Like, I don't want to do macroeconomics and come up with policy for governments. Like, that's not what I want to do at all. And I kind of felt like, wow, I've thrown so much of my life into this. And now I'm actually going to go do something else. Not that that information is useless. Of course, it applies in the things that I do. But a part of me was a bit like, oh, what a shame. Yeah, uh, like totally. If you go through a grieving process, you know, like I remember having conversations with my friends at the time and they were like, wait, what? You Literally, everyone was like, you're the one who we all kind of look to as the person that's going to make it in the industry. Like you're the one who's shown us how to do it. How can you be turning away from this? And I remember speaking to my little brother who was like, he was like, 
you were married to the race car and the race team. He was like, he was like, <laughs> I was, I can't remember how we were talking about, but we we're talking about my last few years of university. And he was like, yeah, it's literally all you ever did or talked about. So I think that like, when you have a focus that's so clear and such a part of your identity as well, it becomes very difficult to find something to replace it or to even feel like that anything can. And, you know, even now it's been a long time since that happened. Like I gave up that path in 2012. You know, I still write about Formula One. I still like find ways to be a part of it, but it is bittersweet because part of me is like, you know, I could have been down there on the racetrack or I could have been in the rooms full of people discussing strategy or I could have been in the factory, you know, designing a 13 and a half millimeter screw because that's the size that we needed it to be, whatever it might be. And so it's it's kind of like one of those sliding doors moments where you're like, oh, I could have had a completely different life. And I would have had a completely different life. Like I think even I was saying to my partner now, who's a really like creative filmmaker type, I was like, if I had gone down that other path, hands down, I would have married an engineer and our life would have been like based around our garage and you know, we would have <laughs> gone to the racetrack every weekend. Like that's the life that I would have had and it's worlds away. And I think the other thing is that the people I know now don't know that version of me and they think it's like some funny story. And I'm like, no, it, it was everything. It was everything. Um, but I guess it informs, it informs who I am now, but also I suppose one thing that is quite cool is, or the, the the way to make it feel less sad is maybe to think of it as like a, I got this time in this other world and what a privilege that was. Yeah. I think that, I think that's really great. I think, I think that's a lovely way to reflect on it. And yeah, that is positive. So of course, pivoting from motorsports into the world of energy, specifically oil, working on a rig was not your only career pivot. So talk us through the experiences, you know, working in Shell, trying to like position yourself as like building a future within the energy world, looking at the future of the energy industry, getting excited about renewables and, you know, the way you could get involved there. Like what happened to draw you out of that into the kind of work you do now? Yeah. It's funny when you were, when we were discussing the kind of questions we would talk about in this episode, I remember thinking, so many of the pivots aren't actually driven by, I mean, probably that the pivot from motorsport to energy was driven by myself, but so many of my pivots since then have been externally driven. Um, and certainly the, the move out of, of energy and oil and gas into what I do now was, was an externally driven pivot. So the other thing to know about the work that I was doing at the time was I was doing engineering and really passionate about that. But of course, I was running Youth Without Borders and was also sort of really heavily involved in community work and organizing and that sort of thing on the side, right? That was that had always been my side passion. And I had been sort of recognized for that. So I'd gotten lots of awards and 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 that sort of thing because of my involvement in community work. And when I joined Shell, I let them know that I, you know, was doing all this stuff. And I said, obviously, I'm going to minimize it. It's not going to affect the work that I do. The one thing that I did continue doing was I had like a, a blog where I would sort of write about my experiences and so on. But 
it never, I never talked about the company. It was very difficult. Like I didn't even have the company name on LinkedIn. So I, I kept it very, very right. I kept my world very, very separate. Nobody in Shell knew that I had a, a life outside Shell. Nobody in my external work knew that I worked for this big oil company. It, it, the world started coming together when I wrote an essay about working on the rigs for a publication. So one of the councils I was on, um, there was a lady who ran a publication and I was telling her about what I did. And she was like, you should definitely write an essay about your experiences. And I was like, oh, <laughs> no one will be interested. And she was like, trust me, they will. So I write this essay, it gets published, and then it gets lots of critical acclaim. And people are really fascinated by this like young Sudanese Muslim girl on oil rigs around Australia. So I start getting getting approached by publishers and publishers are like hey would you like to write a story about your life and I'm like no I'm 23 years old and I'm an engineer the longest thing I've written is my thesis and that was on a structural design of a chassis right and (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know what that is so just like it, it was so far beyond anything that I had ever considered in my life I had always been a very big reader but I'd never considered myself a writer and then I was telling my mom about this and my mom was like, Yasmina, of course, take the offer. She was like, people love writing, like people give anything to write a book. And I was like, are you sure? And, and then she said something that really changed the way that I, that I framed it for myself. She was like, rather than thinking about it as you writing a book for you, about your life, thinking, think about it as an opportunity for you to share the stories of the women in your life with other people because most people don't understand Muslim women. And I was like, oh, I can do that. Cool. Right. So I write this book and it's it's an ode to my parents. It's an ode to the women in my life at the time. It's an ode also to the many, you know, like straight white men who have given me opportunities in the engineering world and in the race car world and so on. And that book gets published. And I had told the company that I was working for that I was that I had this book contract when they hired me. But they, I don't think they'd quite clocked it. And so they started to get really agitated by the fact that I had this kind of like external life. Um, and the, the, one of the senior folks at the company was like, well, you can either be Yasmin the individual or Yasmin the engineer. You can't be both. And I was like, literally. And, he, what? He, he's, and none of this is written down. So unfortunately, I was never able to hold them to account. But he said to me in the meeting, he was like, listen, Times are going to get hard in this industry and you don't want to be on the wrong side of that. And I was like, are you threatening my job? And he was like, well, I'm not going to say anything, but you know what I mean. And I was like, this is outrageous. Anyway, the book comes out. Um, I get published by Penguin Random House. I don't mention the company. I keep it all very separate. The company loses, like freaks out. Issues. So the other bit of context, (laughs) sorry, this is all so detailed. I had worked really hard at this company to like prove that I was good at my job. So I had done, there's this like kind of certification for drilling engineers and it usually takes people about five years to do. Um, I did it in 18 months. So there's two lots of nine hour exams. I did them in like literally 18 months. I had like done really well. I had, you know, I was really highly ranked. I was actually the highest ranked potential um, drilling graduate in my region and so as a result, I'd been given a double promotion to run my own rig offshore Brunei. So I was just about to go and run my own rig offshore Brunei. I was so excited. And then I get called in to the office and they're like, hey, so we see that you publishing this book demonstrates a pattern of behavior of non-compliance. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to uh, dock your promotion 
Um, we're going to dock your pay. We're going to dock your bonus. We're going to dock your ranking. And you're just going to have to sit in, in town for the next year as punishment. And I was like, oh but my I... gosh. This is yeah. catastrophic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It literally, like, in the space of... And, and obviously, they're a big, massive company. And they make you, as I think I was like 24, 25, just about to turn 25. I was like, oh, my God what is happening? Like everything that I've worked for is like falling apart in front of me. And, and my boss at the time was like, listen, you need to figure out like what kind of person you want to be because the company is going to keep fighting you and, and it's unlikely that you'll win. And I was like, what? And of course, you know, my colleagues, none of them really care because this is not necessarily their fight. They, my parents, again, migrant parents who just kind of want me to, to have a job and, and not get into too much trouble. And I'm like, well, I don't really have much of an option here. I don't want to sit in, I was living in Perth at the time. I don't want to sit in Perth for a year, not doing anything when I don't feel like I've actually done anything wrong. And so I decided to take a year leave without pay and, and start touring with the book. So I take a year leave without pay. I start touring with the book. I end up picking up a job as a broadcaster, hosting a, a national television show um, on the public broadcaster, like the like the BBC. And and I sort of you know tour the book around the world, and it's all fun and games. And then just as my um, time is coming, as my year leave without pay is coming up, and I'm about to go back into the industry, and I'd actually hustled. So I'd another hustle. I'd hustled a mentor, a really high up mentor in a different part of the world in the Netherlands who had actually gotten me a job in London in the new energy field. So I was like, okay, maybe this is an opportunity for me to pivot within the company and work in the new energy part of the company. So he'd got me a job in this new energy part of the company. And just as that was about to kick on things, (laughs) I don't know if I can say this on this podcast, but shit really started to hit the fan in Australia in the media. Just as I'm about to start my new, like, new energy life um, as an engineer in the renewable world, and I've like lined up the sick job, whatever, shit hits the fan in the Australian media, and my life again falls to bits. And I'm like, Jesus, no luck, no luck, <laughs> no luck, no luck at all. And so 2017 um, ended up being me mostly trying to not be on the front page of the Australian paper. And then towards the end of that year, I decided to move to London just of my own accord. I didn't really know anyone in London. I like sort of had one or two contacts. Moved to London by myself with my savings, got an Airbnb for a few weeks while I tried to find a place to rent. And then I, I again, I rebuilt from scratch. Wow. You touched on a lot of points that I think have like universal resonance, even though, of course, what you went through is extremely unique and extremely traumatic. One the fact that when we are in our 20s navigating careers, it feels like everything, your job, you know what I mean? Like it is everything. It's everything you work hard for. It's everything that provides your substance. It is almost the family that you trust outside of your own because when in your 20s, you haven't really got that level of self-awareness and understanding where you've created safe boundaries between yourself and your employer. I'm thinking of my my own experiences navigating the working world in the 20s and the things that I hear from people that I mentor. So to find yourself in a situation where you're being threatened by the people you give your time and your energy to, and, and then ultimately having your hand forced basically like, yeah, so all that hard work you've done and all that promotion that we're going to give you, we're taking it away now. 
the sense of self is almost then destroyed as well. Because I think that I spent most of my 20s having my identity completely tied up to the work that I did. And still to some case now, although like less so thanks to therapy, but you know, when things went well at work, I was good as a person. When things weren't going well at work, I was not good as a person. And it was almost like people kept reinforcing that to you the whole time the book debacle was happening, where people were basically saying like, are you going to be a good worker in this very limited uh, template that we've defined it? Or are you going to be an individual that's pursuing your life? And of course, an individual from like this really unique identity that has a voice that wants to be heard. And I just can't even imagine how difficult that must have felt. It was utterly baffling. It was utterly baffling because as you say, you put so much trust into these institutions and these companies and these organizations. You really believe that your your mission aligns with theirs, that if you do good, that they will repay you. But I think what I learned at the end of the day is the company always puts the company first and nobody is irreplaceable. Nobody's indispensable. And I was very indispensable. And so I learned that lesson very early on. And I and it was also quite terrifying because what I also saw was other people who I thought were supporters within the company at higher levels, not actually willing to put their neck out because of course that would mean that you know, they would also be sort of caught up on in the, the whole thing. Right. And, and people, yeah. you know, when the rubber hits the road, people don't do that. And that was also a, a, an initial lesson in something that I would learn again, very, very strongly down the line. But it, it, it was quite interesting. And, and hearing you reflect on that does make me think of, of my relationship with work now, which is very different to how it was when I was in my early twenties. And, you know, I'm 28 now and I've had how many different careers um, in, in, only, in only a short while. But I think the thing that underscores all of it is this perhaps just ability to continue to self-start and this ability to say, even if everything is destroyed, even if I don't know, even if the one thing that I was working towards is no longer the thing that I want anymore, even if the job, the scholarship that I thought I was going to get or the job that I thought I was doing, even if it's all destroyed, I can start again and that's okay. And, and it's possible and I'm still the same person. And actually my value is not necessarily just in the work that I do. I think all of those lessons are ones that I've, that have been really hard for me to learn, but have actually meant that I'm a much more secure person in who I am now than, than I ever was. That's so interesting. It's so interesting that you were forced to abandon an environment that you had actually worked really hard to excel in. But the way that you reflected on that was, I've restarted before and excelled. I'll restart again. I think that's incredible. And I guess what I wanted to ask was, you know, you arrived in the UK and you now live a very multi-hyphen life. You have a very multi-hyphen career, whereas before you were on very specific and narrow paths within engineering, whether that was motorsports, whether that was working on a rig. You're now in a situation where, as you said, you're a storyteller. You know, you're a prolific public speaker. I love your TEDx talk. And if listeners haven't seen it, they definitely should go on YouTube and or the TED.com and see it. Um, but, you know, you've written books, you write articles. Do you feel as a consequence of basically having that control around your career taken away from you that maybe you're now in a situation where you want to be in control of your projects and you want to be in control of the things you do. And the reason why I ask that is because 
you now work in a way where you are the business, right? And people come to you, whereas before you were a part of a business and people told you what to do. Oh, that's a very astute observation, Evadesi. I think you're completely correct. Like I cannot fathom working for a company in the same way that I did anywhere in the near future. And certainly my response to that is like quite visceral because because so much because because I was so happy to give people control over my life in a way and was happy to serve and was happy to do the you know to play the part of the good employee um or the good Muslim or the good immigrant or whatever it was I was so happy to do that because I thought that that would lead to fulfillment and happiness and contentment and I would be valued for what I was providing and when that was so roundly destroyed again and again and again, I've definitely come to the conclusion now, where which is I want to have control over what I do. I, I do exert that control. I don't take a lot of work because I don't think it matches my values. I don't do, I used to do interviews upon interviews. I would speak to anyone. Now I'll only really do them when I trust the person I'm speaking to or when I think it's of value or I think that you know, this is something that is worthwhile. But I have a very, even though it might not make sense, like it doesn't necessarily have a title um, that encapsulates everything. It's, you know, it's multi-hyphenated and, it, and it's really, it depends on the day. Ultimately, I do what I feel like doing. And I do what I feel like doing and some things pay me and some things don't. But ultimately, my time is my own. And I understand that it's a privilege. But I also don't really think I have any other option at this point in my life. uh, Because I don't feel, and this might sound dramatic, but I don't necessarily feel safe in any of these other environments. um, Because, yeah, because, because, because my experience has shown me that that, that that trust will be betrayed. I think you've actually articulated a point that a lot of people listening who have been burned in work relationships before, or even in founder relationships, like co-founder relationships, are really going to resonate with. There is absolutely an inextricable link between trust and safety. I'd say they're two sides of you know the same coin, and productivity. You know, as individuals, as human beings, sitting in front of a computer screen or whatever it is that we do to get stuff done, for us to really be productive, for us to really excel, give everything our all, we have to feel safe. And I think, you know, thinking of you on the rig in those first few months or a year working there, you felt safe, right? You had ambition, it was supported. And then this turning point happened and you were like, no, because the other thing about safety and trust is that it's completely fragile. And the minute it's broken, you cannot piece it back together. And, you know, I've had experiences in work as well. You know, that's kind of what's prompted me to start my company, Hustle Crew, where I just did not feel safe at work. I felt completely excluded. I felt gaslighted. You know, I would express things that made me uh, frustrated about work, that stopped me from being productive at work. And no one listened to me. No one believed me. And I went through this phase where I almost started to believe them, where I was like, oh, maybe I I am. I am crazy. Maybe I'm not telling the truth. Maybe all these things that I've seen and heard are figments of my imagination. And I spent a whole year bootstrapping a company, (laughs) being quite broke in London, but persevering. Because like you, I didn't trust any other work environment. And then I 
was very fortunate and privileged to find a team where I did feel supported and I could trust them. But I do sometimes think like how many millions of people are out there who are now totally autonomous and like multi-hyphen and freelancing, like partly because they love it, but also partly, like you said, because of external things they had no control over that kind of forced their hand a bit because it's just like, okay, well, I don't, I don't trust people anymore. And I feel like particularly for millennials where all this research shows, and I think it's even more so in Gen Z, the younger generation, research is showing that people don't want to do anything that doesn't align with their values. I think that's just going to happen more and more. And we're just going to have more and more freelancers and more and more founders, creators, makers, people that create a livelihood that they can self-sustain as much as possible. Yeah. And I think you're totally right. And I think the the other thing that people often miss when they when they comment on this phenomenon is they think, oh, these millennials or these young people or these whatevers, you know, they just don't have the the ability to, to to stick with one thing or they just, you know, they're too flighty or they're not resilient enough. Actually, I think the mistake is that other generations have n- felt that they needed to put up with a lack of safety in order to live their lives. And I think the difference is I don't feel that I want to do that anymore. And I think so many of us are feeling like, actually, I don't think it's a requirement for me to feel unsafe in order for me to just do my job. I don't think it should be part of. And there's a difference between like, okay, you know, there's a bit of disagreement or, you know, we need to work on our communication skills or whatever. That's not the same. You know, healthy disagreement in an organization or in a team is fine. But there is a difference between disagreement based and founded in mutual respect and um, and competence and and the desire to make a space genuinely inclusive for people and genuinely safe for people versus a space that says, you just have to do what I say. I don't care for your safety or your health or anything like that. You just have to do how I say, because that's the way things go here. And that's the bit that people are missing. If there was a company where I felt super safe, where I felt heard and seen, and I felt that people had my best interests at heart, and you know what? They're going to push me and they're going to push back and they're going to give me criticism and all that sort of thing, but I trusted that they had my best interests at heart. Yeah, of course I'd be there. But those places are few and far between. That's so, so incredibly articulated. Thank you. Like the difference between motivations and limits is far more nuanced than what like the mainstream media narratives say. I get so annoyed when I hear like the term snowflake and stuff like that. And I'm just like, come on, like dig a bit deeper, like try to understand this a bit more. I think some of the previous generations wish that they had an environment where they didn't have to put up with all this stuff, you know, but because they, they see that we are putting up different boundaries. There's a resentment around that. And I get that. It makes sense. But it's not right. Do you know what I mean? Of course. Of course. Cool. So now we're coming to the the latest pivot as we kind of wrap up the interview. Talk to me about your book, You Must Be Layla, and what is on the horizon for Yasmin. I progressed from writing a memoir to writing my first fiction novel. So You Must Be Layla is a story about a character. She's 13. She's a Sudanese Australian. She gets a scholarship to a fancy private school, rocks up and almost immediately gets into a fight with this kid who's the chairman's son. Um, And he, he ends up being quite racist. They get into an altercation. She gets 
put on probation and suspended and then has to enter yeah enter a robotics competition uh, in order to prove her worth to stay at the school so obviously there are themes that are you know relevant to to my experiences as well but um, it's coming out in the UK on the 2nd of February I'm actually writing the sequel for it at the moment which is also very exciting I'm also working on a television show that we are, I can't talk too much about at the moment because there's stuff um, under contract, but essentially, you know, we're in the process of developing a really cool television show um, separately with another friend of mine as well. And so, um, and I'm doing lots of speaking and there's also a tech and society book that I'm working on, but that that's a little later down the line as well. So there's a whole mix of different things that that are happening, which is fun. You know, I get to write a bit of fiction um, and and work with young, young kids and and folks who are still very idealistic, which is really great. uh, And do work with like companies around things like, you know, I come in talking about unconscious bias and I leave talking about structural inequality. So I take them on a journey. I do a bit of fun broadcasting stuff politics and current affairs and that kind of thing um and then you know I have a bit of fun on my Instagram as well so so it's all it all really depends on the day but I am I'm really happy and grateful to have found a place here in London um and to have come really as I said knowing nobody and now having a group of friends knowing folks like you Abadesi um being part of and connected to a whole network of women of color doing really cool things in their own spaces and it just it gives me a lot of life and joy oh amazing thank you and of course you to me same i'm very grateful to have you in my life what i love about your story i mean you're only 28 so there's obviously so much more to come it's like I don't feel like you're even going to have any more pivots. I feel like you're just going to keep adding titles to the things that you do. It's like storyteller, TV producer, uh, world leader, like astronaut. You know what I mean? And you're just like, I don't need to pivot anymore because I can just do it all. I'll just like do all of the things. This is amazing. So, I mean, of course I could keep talking to you forever, but sadly I have to let you go because you've got a book to write and goodness knows what else to do. For people who are listening, who want to find out more about your book and really probably just more about you, follow you on social media, where should they go? Awesome. So on pretty much all the platforms, I'm Yasmin underscore A. So that's Y-A-S-S-M-I-N underscore A. So you can find me on Instagram, on Twitter. You can, if you feel like, um, join up to my Patreon where I do sort of lots of early release stuff. I put lots of resources and that kind of thing up for people. So there's lots of different tiers there. Um, My website, obviously, um, you can find it by just Googling Yasmin Australia. Um, And... And yeah, I think, you know, I also regularly contribute as a um, as a commentator on the radio station Monocle 24. So you can find me on Monocle 24 or BBC The Conversations. I guest host quite often as well. So I'm I'm around about town. But if you follow me on, on, on any of the social medias or on LinkedIn, I guess, if that's what people do. Uh, yeah, you'll see me. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for like sharing all the learnings you've had from your incredible journey so far with the product and community. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into Product Hunt Radio. I've got a favor to ask you. Will you take a minute to review us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to us right now? Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, Share the podcast with your friends on Twitter and tag a guest you'd like to hear in a future episode. See you soon.